as a pastor, I, uh, I find myself sometimes having the same conversations over and over again when it comes to spirituality because, you know, there are people that want to talk, you know, about traditional versus contemporary versus missionally focused ways of doing church and and they, they want to talk about how we should dress for church. And they want to talk about what kind of music we should be singing. People say things like, I want my, they say things like, I want my kids to know the hymns. And, and they don't know the hymns. But my answer to that is, in the end, I want my kids to know Jesus. And if they know Jesus, I don't care what style of music they're singing, if they're singing about him. But, but I, I end up getting into conversations about whether drinking alcohol in moderation is sinful or not. We get into whether we're allowed to see certain movies or not, and on and on it goes on these different things that people want to talk about. And I mean, I'll even get from time to time, hey, uh, what do you think about that church? And, and, and because they don't like something there, they've been wounded. And the reality is everybody has been wounded by some church somewhere. You know, and, and, and I'm, listen, I'm going to make a sort of a sorry promise. If you, if you stay here long enough, we'll probably light you up too. You know, <laughs> you know that's just the way it is because it's going to happen because when, when, you, when, when you get together, everybody's sinners. We, we're forgiven by God, but we're, we're, we still have that in us. When you get broken people together, coming together, that's, things are going to happen. People are going to make mistakes. People are going to say things they shouldn't say. People are going to do things they shouldn't do. Isn't that right? You know, by, by the way, expecting that and understanding that's coming is half the battle to be able to forgive. Uh, because when you, when you understand that, it's easier to forgive because you, you, you don't say, I can't believe. Well, anyway, that's a whole different message. Well, you know, people, people get into these conversations and, you know, they'll try to, they'll try to bait you into things. They'll say, well... Did you hear what such and such is doing? Hmm? And, and, and listen, what that is, that's code for tell me that you dislike this too. I'm open for you to say this to me. You can do that and then we can maliciously gossip together about this thing. And, and anyway, this is kind of the world that we find ourselves in. We, we love to gather, get together. We love to talk about church. We love to talk about these things. And many things that are, although they're important, Honestly, they are peripheral. They're not the main, thi main thing. In fact, in some of those instances, they're so far down the line that they're not even numbered. So the question for us as a church in the 21st century is this. What is the main thing? What is of first importance? Because I heard, I heard somebody say a long time ago when it comes to uh, being successful, becoming uh, effective is a better word, as a church and as a person, they said this, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So what is the main thing? Because I, I think if we could just get that down, if we could figure that out, then maybe a lot of grace could flow. Maybe there'd be a lot of freedom in our lives. Maybe friendships could grow even greater. Uh, uh, if we could just get the main thing down, maybe we realize that some of those other things aren't as important as we thought they were. So I want to look at that this morning. Let's get into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. This is what Paul writes. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in, believed in vain. Listen to this next line. For I delivered to you 
as of, what's it say? First importance. As of first importance. Everything else just gets melted away here because, you know, Paul, who, who wrote a huge portion of the New Testament, says, of everything that I've written, of everything that I've talked to you about, of everything that I've unpacked for you, let me tell you what is of first importance. He says, let me give you what you can't mess up because if you mess this up, everything else is off. You've got to get this right. So here we go. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. We're going to stop there. Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks, this is all we've talked about. And, and, and these are the you know, are, when you talk about the cross and the things of, that the cross means, they're kind of strange ideas if you're not a church person. If you didn't grow up in church, you don't know these things. I mean, you, you, we use the word sin. What, what is sin? What, what is it not? Who are we to tell you what sin is versus what sin is not? Well, let me give you the best definition of sin that I know of in light of who God is and in light of what we've looked at in Scripture in the last few weeks. Sin is, in the end, sin is the elevation of anything other than God as ultimate. Anything that we put as, as, a, as a priority, anything that we choose above God is sin. That's sin. And we've talked through it like this over the last four or week, four, uh, five weeks. There is a creator God that made everything... And is ultimately aware of everything. He's aware of everything at the macro level. Meaning he knows where every star is. He knows the orbital path of every planet in every solar system in the entire universe. He knows the depths of the ocean on every planet in the, in the universe. He knows the height of every mountain in every mountain range on every planet in every solar system in every corner of the universe. He knows it all at the big picture level but he also knows the micro level. He knows every cell. He knows every atom. He knows every microorganism. He knows every cell that is dividing right now at this very moment. He knows it all. He knows every thought that every person has ever thought, is thinking right now, and will ever think. He knows every event at every level and how those events play into other events and lead into other events and how it flows throughout all of eternity. And he does all of this and, and doesn't even get a slight headache over it. And I got a little bit of a headache just saying it. He made everything. Air, ocean, stars, marriage, sex, children, family, everything. For the glory of his name. To be gloried in, to be enjoyed, and to lead us to worship him. That's the reason for everything. Now, let's talk about sin. Sin is at any moment when you take things given by God for the worship of God and you make those things ultimate and therefore glory in them rather than in what they were given for. So, for example, when I say money is what I'm after, that's what I'm all about. This is what I'm going to get. It's what my life is all about. It's the air I breathe. It's, it's what I want. It's the sole purpose of my existence. And we may not say that with our mouths, but sometimes we say it with the way we live. But money, listen, money is not intrinsically evil. The Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. 
Money is not intrinsically evil, but making money ultimate is is wrong. It is a sin. And when I make that ultimate, when I make that more important than honoring God, then I fall into sin. And listen, we can do it with anything. We can we can do the same thing with sex. We can do the same thing with family. We can do the same thing with marriage. All of those things that he has created, they are not ultimate. They are all secondary and they are all given to produce praise in our hearts for him. Now, when we make what he has created more important than him, then we really do two things. Number one, first, when we, when we take all of our emotions that he gave us and we give all the, and we, all the passions that he gave us and the vitality and the life and the love that he gave us, and instead of laying all those things on him, then we put it on something else. For example, you know, like some of us guys, we like to, we like to put that kind of passion on our sports teams you know, when we do that, then we ultimately, we make ourselves look very, very foolish. What I mean, like, like this, I mean, and I'm, listen, I'm not talking to anybody else, I'm talking to myself, because I love sports, and I have my favorite teams, and I've come a long way. It used to be that if my favorite teams uh, ha- lost a game, that it was just a bad day for everybody around the house. You know, and that's just not, that's just not right, that's just not healthy. And, and, and but, but listen, when you're, when you're nervous before the game and then you're angry during the game and yelling at the ref on the TV as if they can hear you. I'm, listen, I'm talking to myself here right now. And when you, when you cry afterwards because they lost the game, I mean, in the scope of the universe, you're really making yourself kind of look dumb. <laughs> you really are. I knew a woman would say amen on that one. Because, listen, here's what I mean. There's a book I read a few years ago called Death by Suburb by a man named Dave Getz. And this is what he said. He wrote in this, this one quote I wanted to bring to you. He said, soccer is dumb when your wife is dying of cancer. He's saying, listen, you know, we get all tied up in these things that don't matter, that are so temporary. I mean, most of us can't even remember who won the Super Bowl five years ago. You'd have, maybe you could remember it if you thought about it a while or you'd have to look it up. But, but listen, we, we get all excited about winning championships and doing these things. And, and the reality is it just doesn't matter. Ultimately, it does not matter, does it? When we begin to compare those things with things that really matter, we begin to realize that when we pour our energy and emotion into those things, we, what we're really doing is we're making ourselves look ignorant and foolish because ultimately, how, how ultimately ignorant do we look when death is inevitably coming for us, when all of us are eventually going to go by way of the grave unless Jesus returns before then, and we're spending every hour of every day accumulating trinkets and watching television. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with trinkets. I got some. Of course, men, their trinkets are different. And they're usually more expensive. I see some ladies nodding their heads. And men are saying, move on, Pastor Dave, move on. There's nothing wrong with those things. And I like t- TV. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not wrong and they're not sinful. They just become wrong and sinful when they become what life is ultimately all about. That's what sin is. 
The other thing that happens when we make created things more important than the creator, and this is what we talked about recently, is that we belittle God. We belittle God and we belittle his role in the universe. Like, I'm going to go, you know, this is a little outdated, but, but he's a name that most people recognize, even if you're not a sports fan. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, when he was playing in the NBA, he, he's seven foot one. And he would dunk the ball. And then he would do this big, you know, big dance as if, you know, he really did something. Listen, if you're seven foot one, you don't even have to jump to dunk the ball. You know, and here's the question. What, you tell me this, what did Shaquille O'Neal do to make himself seven feet, one inches tall? Nothing. What did Shaquille O'Neal do to give himself athletic prowess and ability? Nothing. He may have worked hard to develop it, but that was given to him by God. God deserves the glory for his size. God gives, gives, deserves the glory for his abilities. And talking, taking what he gave us and glorying in ourselves is just crazy. And when we do that, what we're doing is we magnify ourselves and make ourselves really big and we belittle God and make him really small. So what is God's just and right uh, response to the belittlement of his name? These are things we've talked about. Well, Scripture says he created hell, and we're told that hell is, the, is a worthy and just response to the belittlement of God's name in the universe. But the problem with hell is, we, we've learned, is that hell is insufficient. And I know that you're saying, that's crazy, Pastor Dave. What do you mean it's insufficient? It's insufficient because it does not create worshipers. No one is ever excited about justice when they're guilty. Right? Has anybody ever gone before a judge and saying, oh, and he says, you know, you got a traffic ticket. He says, well, I'm, I'm going to dismiss this today. Anybody here say, no, 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 judge. I want justice here. <laughs> he would look at you and say, can we have a psyche valve on this person? Nobody, nobody's excited about justice. And, and justice is not going to inspire worship in our hearts, but it helps us understand why his second response was so necessary. We love mercy, so hell is insufficient to create this worship. But the problem is, how can God forgive men and women who consistently and constantly belittle the name of God? Would that not further belittle his name if he just ignored it? The answer is yes. See, forgiving us on a whim would belittle his name because he says that he's a God of justice and if he ignored our sin just on a whim, he would not be, that would not be justice and he would be belittling his own name. So he put into place in the Old Testament the sacrificial system and he put in the Day of Atonement. And that day when they would bring these two lambs, these two goats, and one of them would be killed and, and would be drained of its blood and the blood would be poured out on the altar and then the other one would be prayed over and all the sins of Israel would go on that second goat and then they would release it and, and, and shoo it away and it would run off into the wilderness and it was called the scapegoat. And then Jesus fulfilled the picture, the prophecy in that, that act. He, he, Jesus, God in the flesh, shows up on the scene and he has his blood drained on the cross and he carries away the sins of the world. 
Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So what's of first importance? The sacrificial, ransoming, wrath-absorbing, sin-covering cross of Christ is of first importance. But we haven't, we haven't talked about this part yet. Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Let's read again, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Now listen, some, a lot of times any, anymore, when you hear someone teaching about the cross of Christ, it just sort of stops there at the cross. But when the New Testament writers address the cross, they don't stop at the cross. They, they don't address the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection as if they were two separate events, but rather they view them as if they are one event. Over and over again, you hear about the cross and the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection. And these ideas are inseparably linked to one another. Jesus died on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God, was buried, and he was raised to life again. Now, he, he adds that buried in there because there's a lot of debate, you know, whether Jesus actually really died. There's a, you'll see uh, uh, on National you know, Geographic Channel and Discovery Channel, some of those things, they'll put these shows that speculate whether Jesus was really dead or not. But, but listen, I, I just contend this, and, uh, that if you get beaten nearly to death and then you get hung on a cross for at least eight hours uh, and, then, and lungs, uh, your lungs are filling up with blood and then you get stabbed in the heart underneath the rib cage by a spear, if all of that happens, even if you're not dead, you don't just pop up three days later and say, hey, Thomas, why don't you feel my, the scars? I'm really here. Because Jesus appeared to the disciples, and while he had the scars, he was, he was not all jacked up. Anyway, and I don't want to get into the apologetics and go, you know, let me show you why the resurrection had to happen. Maybe we'll do that another time, but, but I'll let Paul defend the resurrection of Jesus because he does it well in verse 5. Let's read on. And that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is just an, another form of the word Peter. So, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. And by the way, this is an, an unbelievably interesting list here, and we'll talk about that in a second. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though, though some have fallen asleep. That's the New Testament way of saying that they died. Not, that doesn't mean that they just went to church service on a Sunday morning. But that's a different story. Then he appeared to James, then all the, to all the apostles, last of all... As to one untimely born who appeared to me also. Now this is a list of men and women who were still alive, who saw the resurrected Jesus. And he's offering, Paul is offering this as evidence that he did indeed rise from the dead. And as we go down the list, you'll start seeing what I mean by here's his defense. Uh, he, he says, Peter, and this is why I, I find this very interesting. Peter, one of the twelve who, who never figures it out completely while Jesus is still walking in the earth. I mean, at one point in time, he, he, he figures it out. He's, he has this revelation from God. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He has this great rev revelation, and he's commended by Jesus. And then like five verses later, Jesus calls him the devil. He's like five verses later, he says, get thee behind me, Satan. This is Peter. He talks big, he never delivers, and in the end, he turns out to be an outright coward. 
I mean, a few hours before the arrest of Jesus, he was talking big. He's saying, even if I must go to death with you, I will not betray you. And I think he really meant it but as far as he could. And, but Jesus just sort of pats him on the head and said, give me a break, Peter. I'm God in the flesh. By tomorrow, three times, man. And Peter argues with him. Now think about that. I, I, I love Peter. I just can't tell you how much I love Peter. He argues with him. Peter has already said, God has told me you're the Messiah. God has told me you're the Son of God. God has told me you're God in the flesh. And now he starts arguing with him. He says, not me. Not me. What do you know, Messiah? So sure enough, he betrayed Jesus three times before the morning. I do not know him. I do not know him. I do not know him. Here's the question. What could have possibly happened that turned this frightened, arrogant man into a leader in the church who is no longer afraid but allows him eventually to be crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to, be, to die in the same way as my Savior. But that's not even the most amazing one to me. The amazing one on this list to me is James. Why would that be amazing? Because it's Jesus' brother. It's his brother who at one point in time thought Jesus was crazy. Because Jesus' brothers and his mother showed up at one point in time and, and he was saying, teaching all these things and, and they tried to grab hold Jesus and pull him out of, the, out of the meeting that he was having because they thought he was crazy. Well, what could have possibly happened to James that at one point in time he's saying, my brother's crazy and now he's worshiping his brother as God. I mean, he's leading the church in Jerusalem and he's willing to be martyred over his faith in Christ. What miraculous event could have made him say it was true all along? I thought he was just a crazy, you know, kid brother, but it was true. He is God in the flesh. And then I think another big one here is when he said there were 500 who saw him and they're still alive. He's saying, listen, most of them are still alive. Go ask him. I'm not making this up. Talk to them. This is eyewitness stuff. So we've talked a length about what's occurring at the cross of Jesus. So we, we've done that for four or five weeks now. And I want us to, to talk for the next few minutes about what's occurring in the resurrection of Jesus. And then what that means for you and me. So I want to flip to a couple places in Scripture with me. Go to Romans chapter 4, verse 23. Romans 4, 23 says this. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our, uh, Jesus our Lord. So, that, so there's the resurrection who was delivered up for our tres, trespasses. So, so Christ went to the cross because of our sins. But listen to the next line. And raised for our justification. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ we find evidence that all of the wrath of God that we had earned because of our sinful nature, because of all the things we had done wrong for belittling the name of God, uh, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find evidence that all of the wrath of God towards sinful man was absorbed in Christ. There's not going to be another Jesus. There's no further need for sacrifice. That's Hebrews 9. Jesus, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And Christ being resurrected is where we find evidence of our justification before God, right standing before God. 
we're not justified before God by doing moral acts, by attending church, by you know, not cussing or, or whatever it might be. I could go on and on here. But, but we do not stand justified in front of God because of any good works or the avoidance of evil works. We stand justified in front of God Almighty by the grace of God, justified by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, listen, I, I didn't plan on saying this, but let me just say this. Every year on that Day of Atonement, when the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, if the sacrifice was, was not uh, acceptable, or if the high priest was not acceptable, walking into the presence of the Holy God, into the Holy of Holies, they would die in that place. There were places where priests went into the Holy of Holies and died in the Old Testament. But how did they know? How did the people of Israel know? How could they be sure that God had accepted the sacrifice and that their sins were covered by the blood of the lamb? How could they know that their sins had been carried away by the scapegoat? How could they know that this would have been done? The answer is very simple. When the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies alive, they knew that the sacrifice and the priest were acceptable. The resurrection was not just a whim. It was absolutely, it is absolute proof to us. When you read the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus, that he took his own blood into the real holy of holies and offered it as a sacrifice for us to cover our sin. That it says that when he did that, as our great high priest, he went into the real holy of holies, carried his own blood as a sacrifice. How do we know that our sins are covered? The answer is... Our high priest came back out alive. Well, if you're going to clap for him, clap for him. See, the resurrection is proof that our sins are forgiven. And, and, and I think somehow the church today, so many times we get off, we, we, we become focused on morality. And listen, it's important to learn about holy living uh, but what happens is when we focus on morality, but people begin to conform themselves to these moral codes, but they don't know Jesus. And my, my question is, who cares? It, it doesn't matter. Who cares how, how good of a person you are if you don't know Jesus? It doesn't matter if you act righteously without being made righteous. Doesn't matter if you do all the right things if you don't know Jesus. It's the death and resurrection of Christ that justifies us, that makes us uh, declared not guilty in his presence. Jesus' resurrection proves that all of the wrath of God, all of the justice that we deserve has been poured out. It's been satisfied. It's gone. For those who place their trust in Jesus, it's gone. There is no more wrath. There's none for you if you are a child of God. So the father, when he sees you, he sees you as his child, perfect, spotless, and blameless because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, our great high priest who carried it in as our sacrifice. That's, that's just almost more, more than we can even handle, more than we can grasp, isn't it? Because, listen, I don't know about you, but I, I know me. And it is mind-blowing for me 
to think that he looks at me and he sees the perfection of Christ. That's amazing. Let's do one more just really shortly and then we'll get into what it means for you and me. Acts 26, verse 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing, listen, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So what did Moses and the prophets say would come to pass? That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So the resurrection of Christ shows us the power of God, number one, and he shows us that he keeps his promises to his children because these are the promises that he had made all along. The resurrection shows us that there is hope for the future, that there is light in the darkness, and that there is forgiveness of sin. And I could go on, but I need to move, move forward here. All right. But all these things that we've been walking through here, they're, they're kind of ambiguous in their framework. I, I mean, in the end, we say, okay, he raises him and we're justified. And there are some big theological words that we've talked about. But what does it mean for you and me as we get in our cars and head home this afternoon? What does it mean for us? Ephesians chapter 1. These next two texts we're going to read are just unreal for those who will hear. So we'll pick it up, verse 15, Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of, of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints, and this is the part we're going to focus on. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Okay, so what great might is working in us? Verse 20 says that great might, that, the, the same great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, Paul is the master of run-on sentences. That is, that is basically all one sentence there that he just said. But I want to focus in on that one part. Try to get in this place with me. What he's saying here is the very same supernatural, God-saturated power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is now at work in those who believe. In the deepest part of, of our being, the Holy Spirit of God is at work restoring souls, breaking down and rebuilding, healing wounds, replacing broken parts, and putting together fractured lives. And the same power that was at work at Christ when God raised Him from the, from the dead is now at work in those who believe. The problem is that most people don't run there for healing. They run to Barnes and Noble or, you know, or whatever bookstore is around here and they get whatever, you know, book Oprah said they should read this month and, and they try to fix themselves that way. But the problem is you, I want you to hear this very clearly, you do not have the power within yourself to fix yourself. And the world will tell you, you can fix yourself. You go, you know, and, and the world knows something's broken. You walk into the bookstore, one of the biggest sections is going to be self-help. 
And there's going to be, you know, one book is going to say, well, listen, if you want to have a whole life, then you should, you know, get your finances in order and then you'll be well. And another one will say, you know, will, will say, well, if you, if you want to have your, your life straightened out, if you want a whole life, then you've got to do this. And, you know, one of them will say, you know, if you want a good whole life, Pilates, that's the answer. I mean, whatever it is, they'll come up with all these, these different ideas. And they're all saying something is broken in us as human beings. And here's the answer to fix it. And so we run to those places and we try to fix ourselves. But the scripture clearly tells us you can't fix yourself. If you could have fixed yourself, you would have already done it by now. Believe me now or believe me later, after 25 to 30 years of struggling with some hidden, secret, cyclical sin, you're going to realize that you can't fix it. You don't have the power to breathe life into that which is dead. And all of us, according to Ephesians 2, are born broken. Now, listen, I know this. I know this from experience now because when my daughters were little, uh, you know, they don't do this anymore, mostly, but when they were little... You know, they would, they would bite and hit and, and kick anybody that got in their way. Anybody, you know, ever worked with little two-year-olds, toddlers, really small children? You, you know, they, I, I, when they're sweet, they are sweet. But when they're mean, they are mean. You know, and everybody kind of thinks that's funny. But, you know, in the end, you know, my daughters, when they're little, they're saying, I'm frustrated. What's the answer? Physical violence is the answer for anything that stands in my way, right? Now, where did that come from? Where did my daughters get, I will inflict pain on someone for depriving me of what I want? They did not get that from Julie and I. Now, our marriage is not perfect. However, I can guarantee you there has never been a moment when we were sitting in the living room watching TV and I said, hey, could you hand me the remote? No, I'm not going to give it to you. And I went over and bit her to take it from her. (laughs) That's never happened. Never. Because I'm afraid of her. (laughs) So they didn't get it from from us. Listen, I am crazy in love with them and always have been, even in their difficult stages when they were little uh, and they had those days. But the truth is, they got wicked little hearts. That's the way, that's the reality of it. And, and, and my girls, when they were little, they, needed, they need to be redeemed. Our children have this wickedness. They're born broken, something not right. There's a natural selfishness in us as human beings. And where does that selfishness come from? I don't think that, you know, that they see it in, in your home. I doubt that they see you, you know, your, your husband uh, or your wife sitting at the table and you say, well, here, I want to serve this person. Can I get you some coffee? Get out of my face! They don't, I don't think that's where they see it. They don't learn, it, learn that from us. Where does the selfishness come from? Where does the violence come from? Born into a broken world. And the reality is you're not going to be able to fix what's broken inside of you. Your lust, you're not going to be able to fix that. Your bitterness, you're not going to be able to fix that. Your rage, your anger, that stuff that's been following you around, all those, the, the, the things that, you, that haunt you, you're not going to be able to fix that. You don't possess the power of life and death, and you can't re- resurrect something that is dead in you. 
Only God can bring life out of death. And that's why we celebrate Him, not us. We boast in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus alone. And that same power that is at work raising Christ from the dead is at, working, is at work in all who believe. It's a great promise. I wish we'd run to that more often than Barnes & Noble. One more, Romans 8, we'll pick it up in verse 33. We'll go quickly. Who shall bring, I love this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I, I love it. I'm not going to preach on this part. I could preach. That's probably about an eight-week sermon series right there because he's saying, who can bring a charge against you in the court of justice? It's God who justifies. So when the enemy comes and says, uh, this, they have done this. This is their action. God says, they weren't justified by their actions, so you can't bring a charge against them. I'm the one who justified them. Keep reading. Who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a phenomenal text because not only is the power of the resurrection at work in those who believe, but because of Christ's death and resurrection, we see that there is now no condemnation for those who believe and that nothing can separate us from Christ. Now, I'm not saying you can't backslide because you can choose to walk away from Him if you want, but I'm saying that there is no circumstance, there is no power of darkness, there is no sickness, there is no person, there is nothing in all of creation that can pull you away from the hand of God. When, you, when he has a hold of you. Now I want to tell you why that's such good news. I, I grew up in church. Growing up in church, I had this picture of perfection that was supposed to occur as soon as I said that little prayer and got baptized. So I came up and prayed, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Amen. And I was baptized and I loved the Lord. But what happens when you love the Lord and there's still lust in your heart that haunts you. What do you do then? Because in most churches, we don't feel like it's safe to talk about things like that. So everybody is so busy pretending that they don't struggle with things like that. And then because everybody comes in and puts their mask on, we don't feel the freedom to even try to find help. You know, when I first came to Christ, it seemed like to me, it seemed like everybody else, when they got saved... They just like fluttered about in Shekinah glory, you know, and they were all, you know, perfect. And I was just sort of stuck in the mud. But what happens when you fall in love with Jesus, but there's still some bitterness in your heart? What happens when you fall, fall in love with Jesus, but still have some sin issues you need to deal with? Well, in that situation, praise God for Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, God says, no, 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 no. He says, I know you're not perfect. But we'll work through this. And he says, 
but I'm not letting you go in the meantime. He says, we'll get there. I started this and I'll finish it. He says, don't give up. Keep walking. Keep pressing in. Keep confessing. Find God-loving, Christ-exalting believers and do life with them. Get help. Get guidance. But don't give up. He says, I'll heal you and I won't let you go in the meantime. This is the God who is the judge of the universe saying, there is no one who can condemn you if I don't and I don't so no one can. He, who, he says, who will bring a charge, even be able to bring a charge against you, your mind? He says, what court could they possibly charge you in because everything's mine. It's my court is the only court that matters. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about those voices inside of us that constantly condemn us. The voice of the enemy. It says, oh, you call yourself a Christian. Oh, you, you can't love Jesus. Look at this. Look at, look at the lust in your heart you, that you can't shake. Look at, the, look at the rage that's inside of you. There's no way that you really love Jesus and there's no way he could really love you. And God is saying, wait, wait, wait. You're, you're listening to him? He's saying, don't you know I'm going to crush him one day? He says, I wouldn't listen to that one. No one can bring a charge against those whom God has justified. So that means we don't give up because God's power will finish the work he started in us. This is what the resurrection means to us. To those who believe the resurrection is power working in our hearts. It's not perfection because you're not going to get there until you're in heaven. That's not the goal. The goal is growth, becoming more and more like him every day. It's not perfection. It's power working in our hearts, changing us and molding us, making us who he wants to be day by day. So that one day down the road, when you stumble and fall a little bit and, and you say to yourself, that voice starts going again and saying, who do you think you are? You can't love Jesus when he picks you up and says, don't listen to that voice. I, I know you fell, but look how far you came. You're not who you used to be. So get up. Keep walking. Because I started it. I'm going to finish it. And it says we stumble about on the path to sanctification. Christ holds us fast. This is of first importance. That Christ was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. In the end, Jesus is not here to condemn you or judge you. He's here to set you free from judgment and condemnation. That's John 3, 16 and 17. That's why he died. That's why we're here. Not because we think we're better than anybody else in this city, but it's because we know we're not. So we're not trying to, to tell people, hey, do life our way. We're just trying to point people to the cross what Jesus did, what the resurrection means. So this I proclaim to you today, and it is of first importance that Christ was crucified for the forgiveness of sin and that he was buried because he was dead and God the Father brought him back to life 
And that same resurrection power will transform those who believe. For those who believe, there will be no condemnation, no judgment, and nothing will be able to separate us from the love of, Christ, of, love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these men and women.